Now, there are two types of people. Those who love olives and those who absolutely don't. So, olive fans, have you noticed that all olives are canned and you can't seem to buy fresh ones anywhere? Well, the reason for that is simple. Fresh olives have such a disgusting taste that no grocery wants to sell them. Yeah, for real. All these cans and oils and chemicals serve to make them edible. Still doesn't work well enough for anti-olive people. Have you noticed that grocery stores don't have windows? There are several reasons for that. First, they want you to spend more time inside and buy more stuff. For this purpose, they create a different atmosphere, cutting you off from the outside world. For example, you can't see it getting dark or raining outside, and you lose track of time, kind of like in a casino. But there are other reasons too. For example, having windows would decrease available space for shelves with products. Also, direct sunshine can cause products to go bad faster and make labels fade away. Did you know that H&M, the name of the clothing store, is short for Hennes & Moritz? It's a Swedish company that originally was only selling women's clothes. And so it was called Hennes, which means hers in Swedish. Moritz Wildforce owned a hunting apparel retailer, which was then acquired by Hennes's owner. The store started to sell men's clothes, too. And the name of the store changed to Hennes & Moritz, or as we know it, H&M. Now, some more about marketing. I bet that whenever and wherever you buy your oranges, they're always in a red mesh bag. You rarely see them lying around without a bag. And it's all for a reason. The color of the bag was chosen carefully. When packed in a red mesh bag, oranges appear more orange, and they seem fresher and more appealing to you. So you're more likely to buy them. Lemons are usually sold in green mesh bags for a similar reason. If you pack them in red, they'll look more orange. And green goes better with yellow, making the lemon stand out. There are so many things I don't understand about the world, and one of them is this. Why do chocolate bars, like Mars or Snickers, have those zigzag waves on the bottom? Turns out, well, not surprisingly, that they appear during the manufacturing process. When a chocolate bar is produced, it lies on a patterned belt of an enrober. This machine coats the bar with melted chocolate and then keeps it at a particular temperature to make it freeze. The reason the belt is patterned and not smooth is to recover excess chocolate. When the bar freezes, the prints stay. Now, you've probably noticed that old chocolate can turn whitish on the surface. This happens because, with time, liquid fats contained in the chocolate bar, for example, cocoa butter, start to travel up through the chocolate, crystallizing on top. That's the white powder, also known as fat bloom. It's completely harmless, so don't worry about it. And if you really hate it, well, just ship that chocolate over to me, and I'll dispose of it orally. Lollipop sticks have those squared holes in their ends for a reason. When candy is put on a stick, some of it goes into the hole, fixating the sweet part. This way, the candy ball, or whatever shape it is, is less likely to fall off the stick. Egg yolks can be different colors, starting with pale yellow and ending with deep orange. What does it depend on? No, not the chicken breed. Those only affect the color of the shell. The color of the yolk depends on a chicken's diet. If its food has more yellow and orange pigments, the yolks will be darker. And yeah, yolks of any color are equally nutritional, so no worries. Since we're talking about farms, look at these barns. What do they have in common? Yep, yeah, the color red. And it seems like a trend. 
there were times before a wide variety of paints became available when people had to make their own paint for their barns. Years ago, farmers were sealing barns with linseed oil, which is orange in color. And to that oil, they also added milk, lime, and rust. Rust was available and handy, and it had the power to get rid of moss and fungi. Together, these ingredients turned the mixture red, and that was used as paint. Nowadays, it's just a tradition many still follow. You've probably noticed the little rubber hairs on car and bike tires. Any special purpose? Well, no. They appear during the tire manufacturing process. Rubber is mixed with carbon black and put into a tire mold. Then it gets spread all over the mold under high air pressure. To make a good tire, the rubber should cover all the surfaces equally. But there's a problem. Air bubbles can form between the mold and the rubber. To make sure it doesn't happen and help extra air escape, tire molds have little holes all over them. Some rubber gets in there, and once the tire is ready, it turns into those little hairs. No one cares enough to remove them because that would be useless work, and those hairs don't harm anyone. Those little black dots on car windows are called frits. Nothing to frit about. They're supposed to make the surface of the glass rougher so that the adhesive can stick and glue the glass to the car frame better. The black enamel also blocks UV light that can melt the adhesive underneath the bands around the window. The black bands heat up faster than the transparent glass. And luckily, the little dots are there to help distribute the temperature evenly. Now, buses have such huge steering wheels for a reason. Buses are bigger than cars and also way heavier. So it's harder to turn a bus around, and you need way more strength to do so when you drive a car. A bigger steering wheel, which has a bigger radius, allows the vehicle to turn more easily. And it requires less force than you need should the wheel be smaller. Trucks have big steering wheels for the same reason. Also, buses usually have those bright patterns on their seats. The reason is actually pretty disgusting. Those patterns are supposed to hide stains on the seats. The brighter the seat is and the more patterns it has, the harder it is for a passenger to notice stains. Even better, the patterns are usually so bright that no person wants to look at them for long enough to spot the stains. So yeah, the patterns are literally there to make you look away. And if you still do look, to make the dirt less noticeable. Can I please hear a ew? And that's the exact reason why hospitals and hotels use white sheets to show how clean they are and how high their standards are. We all know there's light in refrigerators. I bet you've tried to peek inside to catch it turning off at least once. Yeah. But the freezer, on the other hand, doesn't have any light inside. So why is that, we have to ask. Well, the main reason is that installing an additional light in the freezer costs the manufacturer money. It might not seem like much, but keep in mind that it's not just a matter of one light, but also the wiring, the fixture, the switch, and so on. And manufacturers want to save as much money as possible. Besides, no one really needs a light in the freezer. It's not like you browse your freezer as often as the main part of the refrigerator. Also, in older freezers, ice crystallizes in the compartment, meaning that the light would get covered with ice anyways. Maybe that's why there was no light initially, and then it just stuck or froze. Many backpacks have a diamond patch with two parallel cutout slits on the front. It's made for your convenience. You can attach something like a water bottle or a pair of shoes to this slit. It comes in especially handy when you go hiking. 
Imagine not having to hold all these things in your hands, because you're going to need your hands to fight off the bears. Hey, just kidding. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side. When we look at our planet from space, one color dominates. That's why Earth is called the blue planet. About three quarters of our world is covered with water. But there's a catch. 96.5% of this water is trapped in the oceans. And if you remember the first time your parents took you to the seaside, drinking that water is a big no-no. So, why is ocean water salty and undrinkable? There are two main reasons. The first is runoff water from the land. Rainwater is slightly acidic. Its pH factor is somewhere between 5 and 5.5. Five and For comparison, pure water has a pH factor of 7, and the acid we find in batteries is a bit more than zero. Such rain erodes rocks when it falls on the ground. This releases ions, such as sodium and chloride. They end up in rivers and streams that eventually empty into the ocean. Living organisms remove some of the good ions, but the rest remains. Over time, this increases their concentration in the water. Oceans have their own salt powerhouse. Vents in the sea floor let out a hydrothermal fluid. Sounds complicated, but it's easy to understand. Water seeps down the gaps on the ocean floor. Then, the magma from the Earth's core heats up the water. There is a chemical reaction that frees seawater from oxygen. It picks up metals, such as iron and zinc. The vents on the sea floor release this metallic water back into the ocean. During an underwater volcanic eruption, the process speeds up. Salt and other minerals are directly released into Earth's oceans. Over time, salt accumulates on the seafloor and forms domes. These deposits occur under dry land as well. Some places on the globe have a large number of salt domes. The Gulf of Mexico is just one example. Beneath the waves, they affect the salinity of water. Other factors that determine how salty a body of water is include evaporation, air temperature, and precipitation. The general rule is that salinity is low near the equator and at the poles. All the oceans and seas in between are likely to have high salinity. Scientists estimate that dissolved salts make up 3.5% of the weight of the world's seawater. The waters that empty into the ocean, such as lakes and rivers, are fresh water. So, why is the seawater salty? To answer this question, we must travel into our planet's past. Researchers believe that primeval seas weren't as salty as they are today. But over time, Rainfall washed away the rocks on land, transporting vast amounts of salt into the oceans. The process has been going on for more than 3.8 billion years. Today, some 4 billion tons of dissolved salts end up in Earth's oceans every year. The input and output of salt are fairly balanced. This means that seawater's salinity is stable. So, why can't we drink seawater? We already take salt into our bodies with food and drinks. It is called dietary salt. The World Health Organization recommends that humans consume no more than a teaspoon per person, per day. You shouldn't go over that amount if you want to keep your heart healthy. Centuries ago, salted beef and pork were the standard diet of seafarers. Meat was preserved using salt. At sea, fresh fruit and vegetables would go bad after just a couple of weeks. Before refrigeration, this was the only way to keep food fresh. Pickling was another option for storing food. The reason why we can't drink seawater is the salt content. 
the percentage of this mineral in our blood is nearly four times lower than the percentage of salt in seawater. Our body simply cannot process such a high amount of the substance. When we intake salt as part of our diet, we also drink liquids. When you serve pretzels, you probably have a glass of water or juice nearby. It helps quench the thirst and keep the salt levels in check. If we drink water straight from the ocean, the exact opposite happens. We just become thirstier. Our body absorbs both water and salt. They end up in our bloodstream. The organs responsible for getting all this salt out of our blood are the kidneys. But they need water to perform their duty. The higher the salt content, the more water they need to wash it away. When the process repeats itself several times over, you become dehydrated. This is the process of losing water from the body. And there's another catch. You start releasing more water than you take in when you drink seawater. The difference leaves you thirstier than you were when you started drinking seawater. Not a good idea to begin with. But some marine mammals, such as whales, seals, and even seagulls can drink water from the sea, just like we drink tap water. The kidneys of these mammals are super efficient. Birds have special glands in their beaks that prevent salt from getting inside their bloodstream. Scientists found that the only land animal that can drink seawater is the camel. And if you ever wondered if fish drank seawater, they do. The gills and kidneys help them pump out the excess salt. For humans to drink ocean water, it first needs to go through desalinization. This is the process of removing salt from seawater, and there's a lot of it to take away. Estimates show that if we laid out all the sea salt across Earth's landmass, it would be higher than the Statue of Liberty. That's why desalinization on a global scale isn't realistic. Right now, less than half a percent of the drinking water we produce comes from seawater. And the demand for potable water is only going to increase. The current rate of consumption means that the demand for fresh water doubles every 20 years. The biggest issue with desalinization is the energy cost. It takes 10 times more energy than other water production methods. And the carbon footprint is huge. Large desalinization plants often need to have their own power stations. This is all because of the technology behind the process. Salt dissolves easily in water. It creates a strong chemical bond with water that is hard to break. Desalinization facilities mostly use reverse osmosis to achieve this. Large pumps exert pressure on seawater to push it through a filter. Its membrane is so fine that each pore is a fraction of the size of a human hair. The filter allows for water molecules to pass. Larger salt molecules remain trapped in the membrane. For every quarter of a gallon of fresh water the plant generates through desalinization, there is the same amount of water that is now twice as salty. Hardly the ideal method of water purification. The idea that humans could drink seawater isn't new. In the mid-4th century BCE, the famous Greek philosopher Aristotle considered using a series of filters to remove salt from water. Ships in the 16th century had small, portable distilleries that could boil seawater. This was merely patchwork since exposing seawater to high temperatures doesn't make it drinkable. Such thermal processing only sterilizes the water. You would need to catch the steam that evaporates and wait for it to cool down before it's safe to drink. This is a complex and time-consuming method that is probably not worth the effort. Let us imagine for a second that we got rid of all the salt from the Earth's oceans. We would get an endless supply of drinking water. But at what cost? There are millions of animal and plant species that are adapted to salt water. These include plankton, the basis of all marine life. 
they wouldn't have enough time to adapt to the new conditions. Not all fish are like the salmon which thrives both in fresh and salt water. The sudden switch would also have a profound effect on our planet. Since fresh water is less dense, it would immediately cause the ice cap in the Arctic to sink by four inches. This would trigger the largest tidal wave the planet has ever seen. Although the idea of desalinization on a global scale sounds good on paper, we should take it with a grain of salt. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side. In California, there's this light bulb that has been shining bright since 1901. Originally a 30-watt lamp, this special thing now emits a cozy glow similar to a 4-watt nightlight. It was created by a French inventor, Adolphe Chaillet, mm. who produced the hand-blown carbon filament mm. common light bulb back in the late 1890s. The bulb's journey took an interesting turn when the company's owner donated it to the local fire department. Since then, it has hardly ever been turned off, earning the well-deserved title of the world's longest-lasting light bulb. Now let's shed some light on the lifespan of modern versions. The lifetimes depend on the brand, technology, and type. Nowadays, a new generation bulb can last beyond 20,000 hours. We went forward in technology and developed much further, but a light bulb from two centuries ago was more durable than the recent ones. That's kind of weird. And if you noticed, this contradiction isn't limited to light bulbs. It's like everything we buy these days tends to break down much faster than it used to. Well, that's because of something called planned obsolescence. It's when companies design products to wear out quickly or become useless in a short amount of time. The sneaky idea behind this is to make you buy new stuff or upgrades. Some countries have actually banned this practice because mm, it's not cool. It all started with the car industry in the United States back in 1924. This guy named Alfred P. Sloan Jr., who worked for General Motors, suggested releasing new car models every year to keep sales going. Planned obsolescence works best when a company has a bit of a monopoly or at least very few competitors. Before they implement this tactic, they need to be pretty sure that you'll come back to them for a replacement because you're loyal to their brand. They know how long the product is designed to last, but you don't. Interestingly, products tend to last longer when there's more competition in the market. For example, when Japanese cars with longer lifespans hit the American market in the 1960s and 70s, American car makers had to step up their game and make more durable cars to keep up. So, what's good and bad about planned obsolescence? Well, from the manufacturer's point of view, it's great. It helps them make money and keeps the economy rolling because people continue buying new stuff. It also pushes companies to invest in research and development, which can lead to cool innovations. But on the downside, there's a load of waste involved. We're talking tons of it. Plus, we're using up precious resources. There are different types of this notion. Systemic planned obsolescence happens when your computer or other gadgets can't handle the latest updates or connect with new accessories because the technology has changed. If it's perceived, then the perspective around the item changes. For instance, smartphone or fashion designers change the style of their products to make the older ones seem less cool. And if it's dated, then yeah, there's this secret extermination date. Some products just stop working or get turned off after a certain date, forcing you to buy a new one. 
Then there's legal planned obsolescence. This is when a law is passed that makes it illegal to use certain products. Some products are designed with the phrase, no repairs allowed in mind. Have you ever tried fixing your broken electronics? Well, some companies make it impossible by developing their products in a way that you can't open them or replace parts. Another production strategy is made to break. Some products are purposely designed to wear out quickly. Manufacturers use flimsy materials that get easily damaged or worn out. And sometimes you can't even upgrade the software on your computer or phone because it's not compatible anymore. How about those non-replaceable batteries? You know those devices that have built-in batteries you can't change? Well, after a couple of years, those batteries go down and you're forced to buy a whole new device instead of just replacing the battery. We experience the same thing with clothes as well. Vintage pieces tend to last for decades, but if you buy a new t-shirt, even if it's from a decent brand, you get issues after a couple of years. We didn't arrive at this point in a day. A recent study made about tights revealed a new secret. It turns out that clothing brands are intentionally making women's tights that are prone to laddering, causing them to be thrown away after just six uses. Our grandmother's tights withstood way more wear and tear than ours. 130 million pairs of tights are sold in France alone every year. In this study, almost two-thirds of the participants indeed admitted that their tights barely made it past six uses. I mean, they didn't get bored of wearing them. The tights became unwearable due to their fragile nature. On average, women end up buying around 10 to 11 pairs of tights per season to keep up with the constant need for replacements. The study pointed fingers at the two main culprits, poor quality fabric and the use of additives that supposedly make the tights less durable. Apparently, tights manufacturers produce them more like tubes to cut costs, neglecting the natural contours of human legs. They also seem to lack the attention to detail that comes with finishing products by hand. The clothing game, in general, has seen some major transformations in recent decades. And it's all been influenced by a bunch of different factors. We're talking about technological advancements, shifts in how we shop, and changes in how clothes are made. Back in the day, clothes were generally made of natural materials like cotton, wool, and silk. They were meant to hang around in your wardrobe for ages. But now, things have taken a turn. The spotlight is on synthetic materials like polyester and nylon. Sure, they're cheaper to produce, but they might not hold up as well or feel as comfy. Oh, and let's not forget the rise of fast fashion. It's all about producing tons of super cheap clothes that you wear for a hot minute before tossing them aside. Quality isn't always the priority here. Speed and low cost are the big players in the game. But hey, don't lose hope. There's a brighter side to this story. More and more people are jumping on the sustainable and ethical fashion train. They want clothes made from eco-friendly stuff and created under fair labor conditions. And guess what? This movement is bringing quality and durability back into the spotlight. Brands are stepping up their game and making clothes that are built to last. So, yeah, the clothing world has seen some big changes. With the rise of fast fashion, we've seen a shift toward cheaper and less durable materials. But at the same time, there's a growing crowd pushing for sustainable, ethical, and high-quality fashion. It's like a fashion tug-of-war, but we'll see who wins in the end. Back to the reliability of cars nowadays. 
it seems like new vehicles are experiencing more breakdowns. And it's not just the typical engine and gearbox issues that some brands used to have. Nope. Now it's the climate control systems, electrics, in-car entertainment units, onboard electronics, and even power windows that are giving up in the first few years. This tech issue isn't, of course, specific to automobiles. Apple admitted to deliberately slowing down iPhones, then there are refrigerators. They've got a compressor problem, those last only about one-third to one-fourth of their previous lifespan. They also have red flags related to their doors. Instead of being screwed on tightly, they're sort of glued in place. All that pulling the door in the middle of the night when you can't sleep can lead to trouble. Over time, the doors lose their friction and start acting all wobbly. Overall, there's a bright side to this notion. Now there are products that are made to last less to help the environment. For example, seaweed bags instead of plastic bags. Fancy a cup of tea? Then dissolvable tea bags got you covered. Edible water blobs and edible spoons are next-level inventions. Numerous brands sell detergent or shampoo pods and toothpaste tablets. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side. Let's talk about calendars, a super important tool in human civilization. Imagine if we didn't have calendars. Chaos, right? We wouldn't know when to celebrate birthdays, be able to plan holidays, or even show up for important events. Calendars bring order to our busy lives and help us make sense of time. But here's the cool part. Humans have been using them for thousands of years. Ancient civilizations created their own unique calendars based on their needs and cultural beliefs. Some ancient calendars followed the cycles of the moon, while others focused on the movements of the sun. Some even combined the two. Talk about celestial fusion. Today, we use the modern Gregorian calendar as our primary system. But did you know that alongside this trusty timekeeper, there's a whole bunch of other ancient calendars still kicking around? Yup, they're like old friends that we can't let go of. They help us celebrate cultural festivals, plan religious observances, and connect with our roots. So let's visit some famous ones. Buckle up. First up, the Mayan calendar. These ancient Mesoamericans were serious about time. Their calendar was a combo of lunar and solar cycles like a cosmic mashup. It had different cycles within cycles, making it mind-bendingly intricate. It's like solving a space puzzle. Of course, we can't forget the ancient Egyptians with their awe-inspiring calendar. They used a solar-based system and were keen on aligning it with the flooding of the Nile River. Talk about staying in sync with nature's rhythms. And finally, the Aztec calendar, a work of art in itself. It was a mesmerizing mix of solar, lunar, and ritual cycles. Its intricate stone carving, the sunstone, is like a cosmic masterpiece that captures the essence of time. These ancient calendars weren't just about marking days and months. They were packed with cultural significance, religious rituals, and historical events. They're like little time capsules that connect us to our ancestors and help preserve their wisdom and traditions. But the most interesting thing is that we use some of these calendars even today. For example, the Chinese calendar. This one has been around for centuries, guiding Chinese festivities and traditions. You see, instead of following just the sun like our regular calendars, the Chinese calendar pays close attention to the moon's dance in the sky. Each month begins with a new moon and has its own special vibe, and the year has 12 lunar months. But here's the twist. 
the lunar months don't always match up perfectly with our regular year. So every now and then, the Chinese calendar adds an extra month to stay in sync with the seasons. It's like a surprise encore. Now, let's meet the zodiac animals, the real stars of the show. Each year in the Chinese calendar is assigned a zodiac animal, and it's like assembling a fabulous animal posse. There are 12 zodiac animals, like a wild and wonderful crew. You've got the clever rat, the brave tiger, the graceful dragon, and more. So if you're born in a certain year, you're said to have the traits of that zodiac animal. Imagine having a monkey or a tiger as your time mascot. But how does the calendar decide which animal gets the spotlight each year? Well, legend has it that there was a grand race among the animals. The clever rat hitched a ride on the ox's back and won the race by jumping off at the finish line. And that's why the rat gets to kickstart the zodiac cycle. So let's go over this cycle. Do you know the year of which animal you were born? Simply Google it and let's take a look at the animals. See if you have any of these traits. Once the smart rat has had its moment in the spotlight, the mighty ox charges in next. The ox is known for its hard work and determination, like the dependable and strong-willed friend who always has your back. After the ox, the fearless tiger pounces onto the scene. With its majestic stripes and fierce gaze, the tiger brings a burst of excitement and adventure. It's a daring feline friend ready to explore the world with you. Following the tiger's roar, the crafty rabbit hops into view. Picture a fluffy and adorable bunny, always ready to bring sweetness and harmony. The rabbit adds a touch of gentleness and creativity to the zodiac parade, like a gentle breeze on a spring day. Next up, the bold and fiery dragon. This legendary creature takes the stage with its majestic presence and mythical powers. It's like a friend with a mystical vibe, who's just filling the air with magic and awe. After the dragons, the wise and intuitive snake slithers into the play. This serpentine friend brings wisdom and insight, like a guide navigating the twists and turns of life. It's always great to have a sneaky and clever confidant on your side. Next one is the lively and playful horse. Imagine the wind in your hair while you're riding a horse in a clear field. A horse person may have an adventurous spirit, always ready for a thrilling journey. Then, the graceful and elegant sheep. With its gentle nature and nurturing spirit, the sheep brings peace and harmony to the zodiac. It's a caring friend to lean on in times of need. Following the sheep, the mischievous monkey swings into action. This lively and clever prankster adds a dose of fun and laughter to the party. It's a playful buddy who can turn any dull moment into a wild adventure. After the monkey, the proud and confident rooster struts its stuff. It's a magnificent bird. The rooster brings confidence and assertiveness to the Zodiac crew, like a natural-born leader. Next, it's time for the loyal and diligent dog to wag its tail. This faithful friend brings loyalty, honesty, and a whole lot of love to the Zodiac family. Dogs are known to be trusty companions who always stay by your side. And finally, we have the wise and gentle pig, with its cute snout and contented oinks. The pig embodies generosity, kindness, and abundance. It's a buddy who knows how to appreciate the good things in life and brings joy wherever it goes. And there you have it, the Zodiac Animal Parade in all its glory. The Chinese calendar also has a yin-yang twist. It pairs each zodiac animal with one of five elements, wood, fire, earth, metal, or water. This brings even more personality to the mix. It's like adding a spice to your zodiac animal cocktail. The Chinese calendar still guides festivities like the vibrant Chinese New Year.
It also helps people decide the luckiest times for important life events. Need to plan a wedding? Check the calendar. Want to start a business? Yep, the calendar's got your back. It's like a fortune teller guiding you through the twists and turns of life. So, next time you see the Chinese calendar, remember that it's a celebration of lunar magic, animal wonders, and cultural traditions. Now, we dive into the Hindu calendar. This one is all about embracing cycles and cosmic rhythms. Instead of just following the regular months, the Hindu calendar aligns with the movements of the sun and the moon. It's like a non-stop party with the cosmos. The Hindu calendar is also still grooving today, and it's packed with colorful festivals and celebrations. From Diwali, the festival of lights, to Holi, the festival of colors. It's a fireworks extravaganza combined with a vibrant paintball fight. The Hindu calendar is also used for religious observances and auspicious timings. It helps determine the best time for weddings, housewarming ceremonies, and other important life events. The Hindu calendar doesn't just stick to the usual 365 days. It accounts for lunar months, solar months, and even leap years. So next time you glance at a calendar, remember that it's not just a bunch of dates and numbers. It's a remarkable tool that connects us to our past and guides us into the future. Ancient calendars remind us of our shared human history and the beauty of different cultures. So let's embrace this amazing diversity. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side. So you're watching your favorite cooking show when suddenly the star chef adds a pinch of salt to some jam that's supposed to go into a dessert. You pick up the phone to call and complain, but right then the chef explains. It turns out that adding salt to fruit is a common thing in different cuisines across the world. Like in Mexico, they like to spice up mango and citrus fruits with salt and chili powder. You can try mango with a shrimp taste in the Philippines and salted watermelon in the southern states. So how does it work? Well, let's say you're eating a raw mango sprinkled with salt. With the first bite, you notice the salty flavor, and the sweet fruity taste is then slightly delayed. It feels as juicy and amazing as ever. It's most likely because salt affects the sweet taste receptor for sugar, and then really magic happens on a molecular level. One study even found that we have more sugar detectors in our taste cells than scientists previously thought. One of those detectors must direct sugar to a sweet taste cell when it gets in contact with salt. You can try and put salt on any fruit you like, but the effect will be different. Salt can make sweeter fruits like cherries and strawberries even sweeter and balance the flavor of grapefruit, pineapple, and watermelon. Just take a ripe fruit and slice it the regular way and sprinkle the pieces with salt. Large, flaked sea salt might taste more intense, plus it looks more beautiful. After 10 minutes, your gourmet dessert will be ready. So, you need to chop up a heap of iceberg lettuce, but that tough core in the middle doesn't want to leave. Just hold the lettuce head in both hands with the core end down and slam it against a cutting board or some other solid surface, not your brother. Now, you should be able to pull the core right out of the bottom and slice the rest of the lettuce without a problem. The next time you take butter out of the fridge and struggle to spread it because, you know, it's hard as a rock, reach for your grater. With its help, you'll easily flake off tiny pieces of butter that will melt instantly on a warm toast. You can also spread them much easier on cold bread without putting your sandwich in the microwave or waiting for a while to soften the butter. 
Professional bakers approve of this tip and have been using it for a long time. When you're frying something, you first heat the pan and then put the food on it, right? Well, this logic won't work if you want to make your bacon crispy. On a hot pan, the meat will cook before the fat can melt out of it. Your bacon will be too fatty and rubbery. So you gotta lay the strips on a cold pan and then turn on medium-low heat. The fat will render out of the meat, and the final result will be super yummy and crispy. Have you ever tried boiling pasta in a frying pan? I know it sounds a bit weird, but it can actually help you save a lot of time, water, and energy. Instead of filling a huge pot with water and waiting for it to boil, put your pasta in a frying pan and cover it with cold water and add some salt to it. Your pasta will be cooking while the water is getting to the boiling point, so it'll be ready much faster than normal. And the water that's left in the pan will make an excellent base for a sauce because it's filled with starch. Mix it with pesto, tomato sauce, and garlic butter. Mmm, it tastes like it's straight out of a gourmet restaurant. Now, the secret to cooking the most delicious and fluffy mashed potatoes is to dry them before you mash them. After boiling, you can either put them in a pot and leave them over low heat on the stovetop, or keep them in a baking sheet in a low oven. Then add melted butter that will coat the starch in the potatoes, and only then slowly add milk. Now your mashed potatoes will have the best possible structure and flavor. If you've shed enough tears over onions when trying to slice them, this one is a must-try for you. Peel the onions, cut them in half, and leave them in a fridge in a bowl of iced water for half an hour before you start cooking. The reason behind your tears is the sulfur that onions take from the soil while growing up. When you damage its cells, the acids contact the enzymes that start a whole bunch of reactions and release a chemical that makes your eyes water. Freezing the onion can weaken that chemical. To minimize it even more, only use a sharp knife to slice onions. This way, you'll do less damage to its cells. It's much easier to peel an avocado if you freeze it first. Just put it in the fridge as it is, give it some time, and then take it out and hold it under warm running water. Now you can peel it easily after you make a couple of crisscross incisions. The best way to keep herbs fresh and juicy is to store them like flowers. If you don't have the right size vase or vase, Take a mason jar or a water glass and fill it with an inch of water. Now put the herbs inside as you would do to your roses. For parsley and cilantro, cover the jar with a plastic bag and store the bouquet in the fridge. Basil loves sunlight, so you better leave it uncovered on the counter. If you've made too much sauce or have some leftovers in a can that doesn't seem to be enough for anything, you can save it from the trash can. Pour the sauce into an ice cube tray and keep it in the freezer. Now, if you need to spice up a meal, you can always add a couple of sauce cubes to it. Plus, as a bonus, which is redundant, the sauce will last longer this way than it would in the fridge. Do your meatballs always turn out to be perfectly the same shape and size? Then skip this one. But if you're like me, just use an ice cream scoop to get the right amount of your minced meat mix. Try saying that five times. The balls will be the ideal shape and your fingers won't get sticky. The easiest and probably the most beautiful way to slice a mango is to turn it into a hedgehog. Wash the mango under running water. Don't squeeze it while doing it. Now put it straight up on a cutting board and cut it into three pieces from the top downwards. 
Just leave that flat pit in the middle piece. There isn't much you can do with it anyway. Now your mango will have two cute cheeks. I mean, its fattest parts. Next, make crosswise and lengthwise cut in the mango cheeks. Leave some even distance between the incisions and don't go all the way through the skin. Now press on the back side of the mango until the flesh pokes out. Does it look like something to you? Yep, a hedgehog. Hence the name of this slicing method. The final step will be to slice off the mango cubes into a bowl. Then eat. Now this one has all the potential to become your new breakfast favorite. You can cook an omelet in a mug. Take a large microwave-safe mug and coat the inside of it with olive oil or spray it with cooking spray. Add two eggs and one tablespoon of milk and mix them with a fork. Now add salt and pepper and any cheese, veggies, and herbs you like. Put it in the microwave on high for 30 seconds. Take it out, stir it with a fork, and then put it back for another 30 seconds. And voila! Your breakfast is served. Oh, be sure to use another mug for your coffee. Otherwise, you get eggs in your coffee, and nobody has a recipe for that. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side.